We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, I'm speaking with registered architect and associate at STH, Anna Fox, and Dr. Ruby Lipson-Smith, who is not a registered architect, but a researcher at the Marx Institute for Brain, Behaviour and Development at Western Sydney University, specialising in co-design for healthcare environments and services. Ruby's research challenges how traditional healthcare environments, programs and technologies are designed and used, and how to measure their impact on users' experience, behaviour, health and cognition. Ruby manages the Novel Redesign Project, a living lab that brings together people with lived experience of stroke, policymakers, researchers and designers such as Anna and the team at STH, to co-design stroke rehabilitation environments. Let's jump in. All right. Thank you so much, Anna Fox and Dr. Ruby Lipson-Smith for joining me today on the Hearing Architecture Podcast. How are you going? Good. Thank you. Lovely to be very well, thanks, Daniel. How are you? I'm going okay. Thank you so much for joining me. It's really great to have you on the podcast so that we can talk about what you've both been working on with novel redesign. I'm really excited to talk about this and I think our members are going to be very interested to hear about the work that you've been doing. So you two have been working together on a project for quite some time now called Novel Redesign. I'd love for you to describe the beginning of Novel so that then our people at home who are listening can hear a little bit of, little bit about the history of what you've been working on and, yeah, give, give us a little bit of background into the genesis of, of this amazing initiative. Oh, yeah, good idea. Well, I suppose I wasn't there for the very beginning, but I was in the, in the background at the very beginning. I was doing my PhD at the time. And one of my supervisors, who was Professor Julie Bernhardt, she was in the process of beginning this conceptualization of this idea in collaboration with Professor Marcus White, who's an architect at Swinburne University. And Julie is a neuroscientist and an expert in stroke rehabilitation. She was a physiotherapist and she'd always been really interested in how the built environment of the hospitals and the spaces where she was working with stroke survivors impacted how they felt and how they behaved and therefore how much practice they did and how well they recovered. And she had that kind of clinician's perspective. And through her interest in it, she, you know, met people who were involved in designing spaces. And And Marcus is an expert in, you know, thinking about how to have an evidence base behind design and visualize different design options. And, and so they, yeah, they came together. And then they realized through a whole series of events that maybe we'll talk about, that they needed a wider team. They needed people outside academia if they really wanted to make a big impact and change the way hospitals looked and worked in the real world. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So one of my directors, Natalie Pitt, she came across Professor Julie Bernhardt in a number of forums, which Julie used to run Optimising Health Environments forums. And so they were really great opportunities that Julie got together PhD students who were perhaps talking about their research as well as other professionals, including architects, et cetera, to talk about their work. And Natalie 
attended these forums initially and then also presented at a number of forums as well. And through, I guess, getting to know Julie and the great work that she does at the Flory Institute and the work that Natalie does and I do working for STH Architects, working in the healthcare space, there was discussion around, I guess, how we could collaborate together on a project uh, where we might have some shared interest in terms of research, in terms of achieving some better healthcare outcomes. And so SDH came on board as foundation partner for the Novel Redesign Project. And yeah, that was back in 2020. So we've been involved for a number of years and I've been lucky enough to be involved since that time as well. So we've, I guess, been involved both providing a monetary contribution to the project, but also time and kind as well, being involved in a number of workshops, sharing some of our own project experiences, et cetera. Because you were working on, you know, some throughout the, the years that we've been doing the project, you've been working on some real life <laughs> rehab hospital designs. And so it was great how they could, you know, feed into the research side of things too. Yeah, I think well, that's what's so interesting to me as well is that I think, you know, when I was at university, we learned about what good design can be. And some of the examples we were given was access to natural daylight and ventilation. And I guess the way it was explained to us was sort of through a very soft science kind of way. It was more diagrammatically based. This research seems to be like it's a very outcome-driven and scientifically-led research project. So you can actually measure how good design can actually make people healthier. Um, is that sort of getting that right, what the, what the aim of the research is meant to do? Yeah, I, I think that is it's definitely along those lines. One of our, our, our top aim is to optimize yeah stroke rehabilitation services and environments through design so optimizing you know that might mean any that might mean health outcomes for people it also might mean the well-being of the staff there's a lot of different ways that you could think about optimizing a, a space but we also kind of more broadly recognize that by bringing together all these partners and developing a framework for how to think about how healthcare spaces are designed and built and measured that we also are creating a, a process, like a, a, a design process that's guided by a living lab framework that has a kind of scientific background to it and, and, where, and we, where we've thought about, you know, how you do, like you said, measure the most important things in a healthcare space, what you need to measure, how you decide what you need to measure. That's probably the most important first step <laughs> and that what, what's important to measure might be different for different people. Yeah, and so we've sort of developed this framework that is specific to stroke rehab, but that maybe could be applied in other healthcare contexts. Yeah. Well, I love that because you've got the Ruby with you on the science side and then Anna with you on the architecture side, I love it when people come together for sort of column A, column B thinking and and push them together to see what sort of new outcomes can can come out. Ruby, do you want to explain what I guess your appreciation of, of architecture was or the, or the hospital space <laughs> before you started to get into this research and, and what was the main focus for people who had, you know, who were stroke victims and part of their rehabilitation, what that process was when it came to the actual buildings that they were occupying during that rehabilitation? Well, I'll answer, yeah, for me, how I, my process of becoming interested in the design of spaces, well, I guess 
when I was a little kid, I, if we start really way back. No, I, That's right. <laughs> you born? Let's start there. <laughs> no, I, when, I was, when I was a little kid, I, I wanted to be an architect and I, I really liked buildings and drawing houses and things. And my, I got a couple of architects in my family. But I, um, when I went to university, I, well, actually in high school, became really interested in the brain and the mind and psychology, human behavior. And so I did psychology and neuroscience at, at uni. And then I worked for quite a while in health services research at Cancer Hospital in Melbourne, Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, you know, thinking about how the service impacted the people who were using the space. And I, when I was working at that hospital, we moved from a really old building to a fancy new one, the VCCC, Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre in Melbourne, which actually STH was involved in designing. And around this, and it really struck me, you know, that difference in how things were operating in the new building versus the old one. And about the same time, I heard Professor Julie Bernhardt on a panel talking about the impact of the environment for stroke rehab specifically, and things like environmental enrichment, which I won't go into a huge amount, but it basically is the, the principle that if there's more things to do in the space, then it will actually change how well your brain recovers. And there's a lot of evidence from animal models to support that. And yeah, I thought it was fascinating. And so I came on and did a PhD with her. And now I've, I've just continued the journey post-PhD managing this project. Yeah, magic. And Anna, like with your focus on, on health architecture, how did you see, I guess, the, the rehabilitation process that uh, people were being put through before we started to, I guess, design for health? How was that addressed for you before you started getting into the thick of it? Well, it's interesting. I guess um, with my experience, um, so I work for SDH and I've been working for SDH for about 14 years. So a lot of varied healthcare experience, not just in rehabilitation, but in other areas as well. So aged care, mental health, acute hospital environments. And so I guess while this particular project is focused on stroke rehabilitation, I guess there's a number of I guess lessons learned and things that we can take from all aspects of different healthcare design as well. And some of the challenges that we have in in projects often stem around, you know, the size of spaces that we can create due to often budgetary constraints as well. So some of the and I guess, you know, drawing evidence from projects internationally as well and how we can influence space is really, I guess, of interest to me because I'm also, I guess I've got an evidence-based design accreditation through the Centre of Healthcare Design, which I guess is an international body. It's based in North America, but they've got, I guess, they've got a real focus on this sort of style of designing with evidence to, I guess, support the decisions that we're making and influence some of the decisions that we're making and then as well as that, I've, I'm a well AP with the IWBI, which is the International Wellbuilding Institute. So that has, a, I guess, a scientific focus on influencing the way that occupants experience the space as well. So as Ruby mentioned, it's not just patients. It's the patients, it's the visitors, it's their carers, it's the staff. Because I think the thing about healthcare is that it's a 24-hour facility seven days a week. And I guess that's sort of unique in the healthcare sector. A number of other sectors don't have that, I guess, limitation around them. And so there's, I guess, a real opportunity to influence change because people 
are in that facility often for a long time, depending whether they are a patient or whether they are a carer or they're a visitor or they're a staff member. It's interesting to hear your perspectives before you started jumping into this collaborative process. Do you want to talk us through now when you sort of came together and you started to actually go through this process of bringing these two worlds together through novel redesign? Yeah, the framework that we use for bringing all those different disciplines together is a living lab framework. And there's a a key player in our team, which is Dr. Aaron Davis, who's at the University of South Australia. He's an expert in living labs. He basically did his PhD on it. And he's done a lot of thinking about how best to bring different disciplines together and to adapt ways of working for different groups. And it was it was timely when he came on board because it was just at the start of the pandemic. So we had to do a lot of adapting <laughs> as to how we were going to work together. So he designed collaboration workshops that could be conducted either online as a group or separately by yourself later. That was useful, especially for stroke survivors who were involved, who had communication difficulties after a stroke meant there could be more of a one-on-one participation for them. And that that one-on-one participation, we had experts in speech pathology like Kira Shiggins, she was involved with that. So we've sort of brought in experts at different times to, you know, help facilitate particular things. But yeah, those those initial workshops, the start of the project, they were really about defining what was important in stroke rehab environments. So some key variables or priorities that would drive the rest of the project and drive some design options that we'd create throughout the project. Because mm. I guess for for someone, I don't generally work in the health space that, that often. Were there any specific requirements for people who had suffered a stroke that uh, you know needed a very particular form of design in, in the design of their spaces? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of different considerations for someone who's had a stroke and part of it is that sometimes in the healthcare space that they're sort of tried to be cared for in a more generically designed space that doesn't, I guess, accommodate their specific needs. And the length of stay of a stroke patient as well is often quite a lot longer. Another type of patient. So I guess the space for them needs to afford, I guess, a lot more opportunity for, say, personalisation, given that they'll be there for a while, space for family and friends to come and visit as well, space for things like mobility aids. You know, they might have walking aids, they might have modified wheelchairs, those sorts of things that might take up space within the room. They need access to, I guess, rehabilitation spaces therapy spaces, gymnasium spaces, etc. So it's hard to, yeah, so the I guess the design of someone who's having a stroke of rehabilitation spaces are really quite different from other types of spaces that you might find in a in a healthcare facility. Yeah. And one of the I think it's that those points were all part of why we you know decided to focus on stroke rehab rather than uh, well, partly it was the expertise of our team, but also it's a really good case study for this kind of process, partly because of the long length of stay, but also because someone who's had a stroke can have any number of different impairments. So if you're designing for all that breadth, then 
maybe you designing more universally as well. But a, a really key difference for stroke rehabilitation or a lot of different types of neurorehabilitation more generally is that it's not about being a passive receiver of care. So, you know, an acute, an acute care facility are really designed around being in bed often and you're receiving care. And a lot of the rehab facilities, when we were starting this project and did kind of some initial scoping, this was actually during my PhD, most of the rehab facilities in Victoria, at least, were not purpose-built for rehab. So they were initially built as acute care or they follow that same acute care model. But the priorities in stroke rehab are really about being more active, getting more practice, getting out of your bed, doing things. The more you practice whatever ability it is that's become impaired as a result of your stroke, the better you're going to recover. So our designs have had that, this sort of principle of having a positive and stimulating environment as like a really key underlying principle to drive the designs forward. And that's quite different. You know, perhaps it it should be something that's more thought about in other healthcare spaces, but it's, you know, a clear priority in stroke rehab that's not often considered in current rehab facilities. So things like having destinations for people to go to outside of their bedrooms, making sure they can see them and know where they are and and that there's a variety of different things for different people. Yeah, and it's got to sustain interest over the long length of stay as well. Yeah, right, because I guess that's mentioning that they, the people who are stroke survivors, that they have that they will spend more time in a hospital than other inpatients. So I guess that's a, that's a huge part of the considerations that you must have along the way, that uh, these are not short-stay options for people. So as you started to, I guess, bring this information together, what was the sort of next stage that came after that? So when you sort of, I guess, got past these the issues of, of things being in lockdown and having to, you know, know how to learn how to meet using um, Teams or Zoom, when you got to, say, 2021, when we started to find our feet, um, what sort of process did you go through in this collaborative space to actually sort of develop this research further so that you could sort of, I guess, get closer to an implementation stage? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's when a lot of the uh, you know industry partners, project partners like STH, became really even more active in the project. So not just as workshop participants, but were also involved in like a number of design iterations that we, we that were generated. So yeah, we we sort of developed a bit of a, a brief from the key principles that came out of the first stage, and then had a series of design workshops where they were modeled into a few different alternatives and then they've been rendered up in VR. And yeah, there were, I should also say that all along the way, there's there's also been some key stroke survivors who've given input on our advisory group, but also in the workshops and and, and giving feedback on those designs in the early stages too. Mm. Yeah. And how how is that different to any of your other architectural processes that you would go through, Anna? I mean, was this, would you still say this was kind of business as usual or did this sort of start to broaden SDH's process in in this space? I think it really provided a unique opportunity for us to have the time to engage with the stroke survivors as well who could provide us with their first-hand experience. So typically in a project we do, I guess, have an extensive stakeholder consultation process but I guess the difference with the Living Lab format was that we had a bit more time to, I guess, talk to the stroke survivors 
be involved with the researchers. There was also some clinicians who were involved in the project, I guess, from our team as well. We had Natalie Pitt, we had Stephanie Antolopoulos, who is an architect, and we had Stuart Turk, who's a clinical health planner as well. So we all sort of brought in our unique experiences from different projects that we'd worked on and different places where we'd worked and all learnt from each other and got the opportunity to put forward some ideas that were perhaps a little bit more radical than you might be able to put forward in a in a real life project. Yeah. No budget. <laughs> <laughs> so so what sort of initiatives were those? Well now you've put me on the spot. I guess we just um we did a lot of testing around the the bedroom design mm-hmm. and how we could, I guess, because that is that is one of the you know, I have mentioned it before, it's one of the, I guess, you know, building blocks of developing a rehabilitation space. And there's a lot of discussion around having, I guess, single bedrooms versus multi-bedrooms and what are the benefits of one versus the other. And it was really good to, I guess, just have discussion around that with the stroke survivors because they also had differing opinions about how they felt about having a, a single room or a multi-bedroom versus where they were on their recovery journey as well. And I guess we just got to talk in more detail about different design ideas, like there's the curved ceiling idea to absorb sound, access to views and natural light, which we always talk about. But I guess, again, having unlimited budget and everybody gets outdoor space and I guess generously sized rooms and just using technology as well. We had some dedicated technology workshops with Stantec engineers and that was talking about what sort of technology we could implement into the designs as well that could, I guess, assist with the recovery process but also make things perhaps easier for stroke survivors to utilise, for example, voice activation to activate closing a wall, for example, so that they could be in a single room or they could open it up and talk to their neighbour if both parties were happy for that to happen. Mm. So I guess explain this, maybe you can explain this to me a bit more, Ruby, with, you know, people who are recovering from a stroke, all of these items that we're trying to make easier for them is are we trying to reduce this kind of effort or physical effort that they might have to go through because that's part of the recovery that they're that they're going through, like they're trying to conserve energy but then also comfort helps recovery. That's why we're looking into things like natural daylight, but also that I'd never even thought about this, this sort of curved ceiling idea or how that would benefit something or benefit someone in their recovery. Mm, yeah, good question because sort of underlying Anna's comments about the single or the multi-bed room, the reason that's an, a topic that's discussed a lot in stroke rehab and some other forms of healthcare is because there are benefits in a stroke rehab setting for a multi-bed setup, things like social interaction. So the kind, any kind of stimulation is really beneficial for brain recovery, especially if that it can be really targeted practice and stimulation, like practicing walking, practicing talking, whatever impairment it might be that was impacted by the stroke. But any kind of incidental activity is really beneficial as well. Because if you're if you're using your brain, you're getting you're getting the systems working, then you're more likely to have better neuroplastic repair. But it's most hospitals are really 
not motivating. You don't feel like going out and talking to people. You, you, you're, you're not well as well. That's the, you've got to balance the fact that we want to encourage people to be more active while keeping in mind if they were really well and could do all those things, they'd be at home. They wouldn't be in a healthcare facility. So there's the balance between, between that and encouraging activity and also making sure people get their rest and their time out and their privacy because they're there for such a long time. So, yeah, and all the other the other potential benefit of being in a, a shared bedroom is the safety aspect. So there's been some research that's seen that falls are reduced when people are in a shared bedroom because, you know, their bed partner will alert staff when they see a, a potential near miss happening or a potential fall might occur. And uh, yeah, so there's there's these pros and cons. And we one of the challenges in our design workshops was to design a bedroom that had all the benefits of both a single bedroom and a shared bedroom. And so to try and remove that dichotomy and think of other design solutions that might have the benefits of both. Yeah, I think that's it's fascinating to hear about that because you're probably going to have some people who, like you were saying, uh, have low energy and people who have high energy, but then you've also got the people who are introverts versus the extroverts. Yeah. yeah. And getting all of that right must be must be quite hard. It's sort of probably more about having a, a space that could be flexible enough to uh, accommodate different people's needs. So when you were going through this testing phase where you also had some people who you know, had uh, recovered from their stroke to evaluate the designs that you put together, am I getting my information right that you met at Swinburne University in their iHub facility to work through this? How did that process go? So in the Swinburne iHub we had, I guess, that was still, I guess, part of the phase where we were developing the designs. So we I guess that that room's got screens. Yeah, we are back there now. I think it's, yeah. this is a to be cut bit, but Daniel, you might be referring to the evaluations that are happening at In the right moment. Now. Like yeah. today, oh, they're right happening now. right now. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry we took you away from the evaluation day. I'm hoping it's actually not right now. <laughs> well, it's, in, it's in Melbourne and I'm in Sydney and Anna's in Adelaide. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I guess we can talk to the, the VR session. Mm-hmm. Just I think what you're referring to, so that one. Yes, okay. Yeah, so that was at La Trobe University. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. So when you, I guess, came together and you started to test test these ideas with people who, were, who had recovered from their stroke, what sort of process did you actually go through with these people to make sure that you could test the designs and that they were happy with what these outcomes were looking like? Well, I think the important thing to note is that stroke survivors were involved throughout the whole process. So we didn't just present them sort of a final design. We incorporated their feedback along the journey as well. So that was, I guess, yeah, yeah, I guess the unique aspect of this project, like I talked about, that we've all sort of been collaborating all together all at the same time. So the design workshops were held in the Swinburne iHub where we had big screens so we could all collaborate together and we could see, I guess, in real time what each of us was I guess sharing on the, we had a shared board where we could all share different ideas and that might be words, it might be images, it might be you know, some of our own photos, it might be some little sketches, et cetera. Is this like a mirror, mirror board or something? Yeah, mirror board, yeah. that's right, yeah. yeah. And then we had, I guess, then we had the opportunity to have targeted discussions around what we'd shared and it might have been focused on, say, access to outdoor space, mm. privacy aspects, wayfinding wayfinding so we had I guess the workshops were targeted to specific areas 
so that I guess we didn't get overwhelmed because there was a lot of information collected, which is great. But it was also the workshops were designed to, I guess, focus our attention on particular areas so that we could gather that information from that session and then bring it to the next session. And then from there, we had the VR sessions. So those were, I guess, to review some of the bedroom designs that had been developed. And so there was four bedroom designs that were developed and got the opportunity to wear the headset and actually see those designs in 3D. So we all experienced the the design, I guess, seated so that it might be that as if you were in a wheelchair as well, how you might experience the space and had the opportunity to, I guess, move around, look from left to right, sort of get a sense of, I guess, the depth of space, the amount of space around us, how we felt, if there was enough clearance to sort of move around as well, what we could see from the beds. So that was a really good experience just to, just based on all the discussions that we'd had to date, how that translated into some bedroom options that we'd sort of, I guess, effectively co-created with all of the research and input that we'd all put into it. And as part of that VR process, we had questions that were asked of us. So I guess your initial thoughts when you're in the room, how does it make you feel? And then there was, I guess, a series of questions as well as you experience the room. So all of the questions, I guess, were the same for each room. And then after that, we had the opportunity to further share our thoughts with a focus group discussion. So there was a few of us who, I guess, experience the rooms in VR and then we had a chat about so we could further talk about what you know if there was any further aspects that we wanted to labor on a bit more or you know we'd had a few minutes to think about oh we like this but maybe if we'd done this it could have been a little bit different yeah it must be fascinating along the whole process at each different stage people might also their memories might get triggered and they'll say oh you know when I was in bed for this many weeks I do remember that the handle that some people use to, to pull themselves up with, that was always in the way or I'd always bang my head on it. <laughs> and they can come up with things, I guess, get triggered so that then they can keep remembering all of those little details that will inform the design. So you can't, it's not always captured just in that initial design brief. So each of those follow-up sessions and the more detailed you get must have revealed more and more from all of those people's memories. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the questions we asked in asked of people sort of understand how they were reacting to the different bedrooms, they were quite targeted and they were chosen quite carefully to focus on those sort of underlying principles that we defined at the start of the project. So, you know, how well does this ward meet this where this is defined as so this key principle of having a positive and stimulating environment, that might mean X, Y, and Z. How well do you think this bedroom or this ward meets that particular principle? And so that means that when we get someone, everyone's rankings for all those principles from, you know, zero to 100, we can then rank the bedrooms or the wards according to how well they meet each of those principles. And from the focus groups and people's more detailed, like qualitative audio feedback, we can work out what it is that's driving those rankings. So we have a sort of overall ranking as to which design might end up on top, and then we can also say why it ended up on top, hopefully, too. 
it's a it's a different approach that sort of from the starting with the values and starting with the principles and measuring those things versus measuring the specific features in the design like whether it has a window or not or how much light there is or not because all of those variables you know in in each bedroom or each ward like in any real space there's dozens of different environmental variables that are interacting and that you're perceiving all at once the size of the room the light the colors all of those things and so to get that you know gestalt all of the people's response to all of those things together instead of asking about the specific variables we ask about in general how well does it meet this principle or this principle and there you know one those two principles could be met or one principle could be met equally well by two different designs that might have different design variables within them and hopefully we get a bit of information as to what what it was that was driving it from the qualitative information yeah and was there any sort of standout or memorable experiences from your process or the focus groups where everyone seemed to agree on something Um, (laughs) when you asked them the question and everyone's just like yeah please get rid of this thing that every hospital seems to have (laughs) was there anything like that I think we did have it was interesting that people had different feedback and I guess their reasons for having different feedback were varied as well, which I, I think has been what's been good about this whole process is that there's so many different disciplines coming together that, and we've all got different drivers and different experience that I guess the focus group that I was involved in, not everyone had the, the same opinion. Mm-hmm. No. And then it was good to be able to discuss why. So we did at the end of the focus group, we did sort of rank our rooms and it was interesting because they weren't all the same. They weren't all the same, but there were, you know, looking at the data since then, there were there were two out of the four that were at the top consistently. I think for everybody had either one one or those two as either one or two. And I find that really interesting. I, I think it is also interesting how there were, you know, some other ones that popped up for other people. It makes sense that it's not the same for everybody because everyone's bringing their own personal experience and history. I mean, a lot of the the stroke survivors who've been involved, their expertise is beyond just the lived experience. For example, Julie Davey, who's she's on our advisory committee, she also has a long professional background in healthcare and, you know, executive level stuff. So there's a lot of different levels of experience that people bring. It would be surprising if everyone came with the same, (laughs) you know, ended up with the same preferences at the end. Yeah, but, you know, if we can sort of say what some patterns were, I think it's really valuable contribution. So something that really struck me in the focus groups was that people who had previously been, you know, 100% proponents of single bedrooms should always be single bedrooms had changed their mind on seeing some of the bedroom options in the evaluations and that could be, that were more flexible. And they said, no, actually, I would be fine being in that one, even though it's technically not a private room. Yeah, so I thought I, I was really happy with that. I felt like it would that meant that they would met the brief. Mm. I feel like that would be a, a really interesting design problem for people to solve because I, I assume that, individual bedrooms must also have 
much higher costs for hospitals and rehabilitate rehabilitation centers so the the design problem there of trying to make multiple person rooms feel like individual rooms or have individual sections or compartments or something like that that would be a really interesting design problem to try to solve so off the back of of all of these different phases that you went through where are we up to now what's happening right at this moment and in the development of the novel redesign process yeah right at this moment the team led by marcus and swinburne are showing different ward designs in vr to participants and yeah starting to get feedback on the the ward so that's you know the corridor it, it the, in the vr the vr shows the corridor nurses station therapy areas and participants are sort of you know, taken along through the whole ward on a little tour in VR. And then they're asked almost all the same questions as for the bedroom one, a couple of extras. And yeah, we'll be running focus groups on them next week. Stay tuned. <laughs> no, that's very exciting. So what is the sort of end result of this research and the, the designs that are being developed? Is there a particular hospital or building that will be built using these designs or is this something that's more or less for a guideline document that will be available for more people to read and learn about in the architecture in the architecture profession well i think well there's there's a couple of answers to that question i guess so i guess from from my perspective and i guess from sdh we do work in rehabilitation the rehabilitation space we're currently working on a specialized rehabilitation center in new zealand with Jasmax Architects. And so there's some very real learnings, I guess, from this whole research process that we have been able to, I guess, take and bring to a real life project. It's not to say it's taking everything on board, but I guess there's definitely some learnings and some equally some topics that we've brought from that project into the novel space as well. But there has been, and perhaps Ruby, you want to talk to this some liaison with the Australasian Healthcare Facility Guidelines, so the AusHFG Committee, as part of this novel project. Yeah, AusHFG, Marnie Blackburn especially, have been involved with the project, I think, pretty much from the start because, you know, part of the aim of the Living Lab is, you know, in bringing together these key st- stakeholders and obviously policy and government is really big part of that. So we've had government representatives as well, Stefano Scalzo, from DHHS in Victoria and and yeah Marnie Blackburn from the AusHFG and that is very important because it, it means that there's some avenue for translation of what's going on in this research project uh, of having impact beyond the you know the industry partners who are involved you know it can impact their work in different practices but having some sort of interaction with guidelines is really important the Rehab Health Planning Unit is currently undergoing review as being what's going to become the subacute guidelines, and that'll include rehab and palliative care and also aged care. And the and a number of people in the novel team are involved in the expert review committee for the new iteration of the guidelines. So it's really great avenue for translating our research, but also just continuing learning <laughs> and continuing building the network. Just going to extend on the AusHFG, just for those who are not familiar with it, I guess in terms of healthcare and designing healthcare, the AusHFG is referenced 
almost on every project in terms of the functional design brief as I guess a starting point. That's why I guess I keep going back to bedrooms and the impact of redesigning bedrooms. And I guess that's a really big, I guess, impact that novel can have in terms of the the design of the bedrooms and the design of other spaces within a rehabilitation facility to have on the OzHFG. So I guess that's as a sort of standardised guideline and it is, it is a guideline, but it's both in Australia and New Zealand jurisdictions that I guess if if Novel can have influence over changing that, then it, I guess, influences our projects moving forward as well. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And I remember learning about 10 years ago that there was some research, maybe it is this the guideline that you're already talking about, where uh, hospitals that had, you know, the had higher architectural qualities in them that had better you know, natural ventilation or access to sunlight, had improved recovery times for people. Do we know if there's going to be some of that research conducted after some of the designs that you've now been implementing or developing once they're actually used in, in some hospitals or rehabilitation centres? Do we think we're going to see that as sort of one of the final stages of, of this research project where you'll assess just how, how well people will recover in these new spaces? Yeah, that's a fabulous. I think you've just defined the grant application there. That's a, that's a research question. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be that'd be great. It's a, you know, it's a long-term thing. Obviously, hospitals take ages to be built, but if you could do some sort of pre-post comparison of rehab facilities that were built before the new edition of the guidelines and rehab facilities that were built afterwards, it'd be really interesting. Yeah, I I think that's a that's a great continued idea. We we have other ideas too about the legacy of of novel. I mean, what you're talking about is kind of the legacy of the the findings from the project or the the outputs from the project. But I also I also feel like there's scope to think about the legacy of the methods and the the way of working, that kind of that living lab model and and the benefits of bringing all the stakeholders together between the what are thought of as silos of industry and academia and health clinicians and yeah breaking down down those silos and so we are we we have been thinking about continued collaborations and sort of novel 2.0 whether that might be in a different healthcare context or even beyond that kind of a national network of living labs to facilitate the sharing of ideas so that the knowledge from each new healthcare facility isn't lost. Mm. Yeah, well, I guess, Anna, in, in your work, I guess working in architecture practices, especially large architecture practices with, lot, with lots of specialisations, it's really great when you have, you know, interesting minds coming together to talk and share and learn from each other. You know, I think even in the last 12 years since, since I graduated, it has seemed like there has been a more of a democratisation of the design process where the silos that you're talking about, Ruby, that used to exist where the stakeholders were sort of met maybe once or twice or three times throughout a project and it was sometimes just just the very high-level people in, um, in a particular client group, those sorts of pr- processes are now being broken down into smaller chunks and and there's more people being involved there. How have you seen that change your process while you've been working in this particular space? I think there is, I guess we do do a lot of stakeholder consultation normally throughout our process anyway. I think it's just 
this has provided another avenue to, I guess, expand our research and connect with, I guess, researchers from academia and and get a different, I guess, different take on things as well, which has been really interesting. And I think just even the process of novel in terms of where it started and then changing, I guess, the way that we interacted through COVID and the data that's been collected, there's been so much data that people have shared throughout their thoughts and throughout all the different workshops that I guess there's an opportunity to do some spin-off projects as well as do Novel 2.0 as well because there's a lot of things that we talked about that you know you'd really like to dive into a bit more detail on as well that we just haven't I guess because there's just so much that we could talk about throughout this whole process but I think it's been really it's been really good to I guess have the sort of evidence-based side and really have some tangible data that we can then translate into design as well because we're always striving for better health outcomes and you know healthier environments healing environments as said for the whole range of, of users of the space so I guess the influence is just not just been even though this particular project has been focused on stroke rehabilitation I guess the impacts are just are not just that there's a lot of learnings that we can take from this project yeah absolutely well I mean and the project is so in-depth and it's it's got so many applications as well as you say this is probably not just something for spaces for for stroke rehabilitation I guess looking back on the whole process what's something that you'd um, you know reflect on positively that uh, you know you hope that you can achieve again in another future research proposal or, or potentially another architectural project for yourself, Anna, or for a, another pro- scientific or research project for yourself, Ruby? Oh, well, for me, it's been the people, like, you know, getting to work with Anna and to understand a bit, of, you know, more about how STH and other architecture practices work and really specialised way of thinking that designers and architects have. It's it's a real privilege to experience that and, you know, to experience the this, you know, equivalent expertise from stroke survivors, not equivalent, but, you know, equally important, but different expertise from stroke survivors or clinicians, just that the breadth of ways of thinking about things. I, I find that really valuable just for myself personally. I love it. So I'd want to, I'd want to achieve that, you know, the next time around that kind of breadth. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah. And I guess just having the expertise of Ruby and, and her team, the fellow researchers and their methods of working quite different I guess to how I work day to day and being exposed to that way of thinking as well has been you know really interesting and really inspiring and having the stroke survivors involved like their input has just been invaluable and they've just been so forthcoming with sharing their experiences as well and that's you know really open and honest and that's really I guess helped with this process and helped us try and understand and really I guess you know, strive to think about how designs are really impacting, I guess, their lives and their recovery journey as well. 
Yeah, no, it sounds like almost the science version of like um, early or medical version of early contractor engagement, you know, where we're getting some really bright people in the room to, to talk about the realities of what we're, we're talking about as designers, where we're the experts in design, but then we're not the experts in, in healthcare. And actually getting getting that live feedback loop is, is so, so beneficial for the whole project. It's been absolutely fascinating learning about Novel. If anyone wants to learn more about this, is there somewhere online or is where, they, where people can see any articles about, about this work or should we just sort of stay tuned to see what's happening next? Oh, there is. There's a website. It's novelredesign.com website and we have links to all our outputs through there. Wonderful. Yeah. So for anyone who's interested, I'd suggest that you'd get along to that for sure. Well, thank you so much, Anna Fox and Dr. Ruby Lipson-Smith for joining me today on the Hearing Architecture podcast. It has been absolutely fascinating hearing about the work that you've been doing. We can't wait to see how it all winds up and uh, all of the results that come out afterwards. And for this uh, doctorate or research project that I, I thought about with evaluating if people get healthier faster afterwards. So I need to see a credit in that one. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing so much about this journey. And yeah, we're looking forward to seeing more about it in the future. All right. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Ruby. Thanks, Daniel. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guests, Registered Architect and Associate at STH, Anna Fox and Dr. Ruby Lipson-Smith, who is not a registered architect but a researcher at the Marx Institute for Brain, Behaviour and Development at Western Sydney University. We look forward to seeing the results of the research when it's published. We'll have to do a follow-up interview to make sure everyone can hear about the results. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.